Welcome to the Abundant Edge Podcast. Here we dive deep into the diverse worlds of regenerative living, permaculture, and natural building as we aspire to help you reach your highest potential for yourself, for your community, and for this beautiful planet that we share. As always, I'm your host, Oliver Gaucher, and I'm thrilled to guide you through this week's episode. So let's jump right in. Hi, this is Sarah Reeves from New Society Publishers. We are big fans of the Abundant Edge podcast. Oliver's guests talk about so many of the same topics that we publish on, and he talks with a lot of our authors too. We're proud to be a sponsor of this podcast that is doing such valuable work spreading the word about how to create a finer future together. New Society Publishers has been a leader in sustainable publishing for over 30 years. If you're looking for solutions-oriented books, please visit our online store at newsociety.com, other online retailers, or visit a fine bookstore near you. Are you the owner or promotions manager for a regenerative business or organization looking to get your message out to a larger audience? Finding your target audience for regenerative products and services can be tough, especially while the movement is still in its infancy and awareness around the importance of ethical business still has a long way to go. If you want to tap into a network of informed and motivated people with strong environmental and community ethics who vote with their purchases, then you've come to the right place. The Abundant Edge podcast now has more than 30,000 monthly listeners around the world and is growing fast. These are listeners who are actively involved in the regeneration of our planet and are enthusiastically supporting businesses and projects that reflect their priorities. We now offer competitive sponsorship packages for single episodes and discounted rates for multiple episodes, social media campaigns, promotional videos, and more. The best part is that all your investment goes straight into making this podcast the best resource for regenerative skills education that it can be. Because of our commitment to the integrity of our message and our affiliations, this offer is only open to businesses and organizations that are as committed to regenerative work as we are. If this sounds like a good fit for you, go to the show notes for this episode to fill out the collaborator application form. We look forward to helping you reach your highest potential. All right, guys, thanks so much for coming all together. We're here with the rock stars from the last previous seasons of the podcast. I've got Shad Goodsey from Atitlan Organics. Hey. <laughs> <laughs> I've got Neil and Jeremy from Granja Sikin. Yo. Hey, guys. And we're wrapping up a month of focus on building soil for market gardening. And seeing as that's the primary operation for both of these farms that, uh, that these guys have developed, let's go around and start talking a little bit about, first of all, how you build soil to create as much fertility on what is otherwise fairly marginal land. So, Chad, why don't you start us off? Um, I know that you have a unique system because you produce a lot with your chickens, both as meat products and for eggs. And you found an ingenious way of composting a lot of the organic matter that you put into the pens, as well as the nitrogen-rich manure from the chickens, primarily for the production of salad greens on your farm. Could you elaborate a little bit about that system? Yeah, sure. Uh, <laughs> thanks, Oliver. Um, yeah, it's good to be here. So you mentioned the chickens and, and the topic is more market gardens. We maintain two different breeds of chicken on the Atilat Organics farm. So we have the meat birds, which are the Cornish cross, the traditional typical meat bird. Uh, they live pretty much exclusively outside, mainly in the food forest. So they're very rarely working in the, in the market garden. We do get some uh, kind of 
uh, it, I would say it's quite anaerobic, kind of compacted compost from their house, but they're only there at night. We just bed it down every day with hay. Uh, most of the time, the majority of their manure is just cycled through the food forest. Uh, but the hens are a different breed of chicken. It's a leghorn cross, uh, more suited for tropical environments. And so we use them pretty much exclusively to fuel the salad fertility, which is our main product on the farm. Uh, we do let our hens out sometimes into vegetable areas or the food forest. We really designed both of our main hen houses, which are each designed to hold 100 hens. So it's 200 total spread across two houses uh, that the houses respect the various parameters so that under the chickens, a deep, hot compost pile can just naturally occur and be maintained mostly by the hens. And those parameters are things like five square meat, square foot per hen and a minimum of three feet of deep organic matter in the compost pile. And when you have that depth of, of material, the bottommost layer is pretty much always finished compost. So when we turn a salad bed, we pull the, pull the remaining plants out, feed them to the chickens, and then dig the under the third layer down in their deep compost bedding, and that's ready-made compost to add to the, to the salad bed. Have you found any difficulties in this system or ways that you can improve the efficiency of it over the amount of time that you've been trying this out? Yeah, so this is definitely, so for, for anyone interested, all of these plans and details are outlined in our uh, Composting Chickens comic book, which is available for five bucks on the Permies Marketplace and on Amazon. So if you look up Atilan Organics Composting Chickens, you can get the 30-page, super hip, super sweet comic book, uh, which has all this information and more. Uh, but yeah, to give you guys a glimpse in some of the things I've learned through processing and since publishing that comic book. Um, so it's scale neutral. So you can have five hens, you can have 50 hens, you can have 100 hens. Uh, a natural size limit of hen flocks kind of in nature is about 200 to 250. So I'd not recommend building a house that accommodates more than 200 hens. You're better off breaking them into two. But even if you have five hens, as long as you respect that space parameter of five square foot per hen, if you think in meters, it's two hens per square meter. Uh, then with five hens, you can basically have a deep compost pile and have eggs and uh, everything I talked about is similar with 50. There will be different advantages to various designs depending on how many chickens you have. For people, I've seen houses built with 10 or 15 chickens and they have these kind of like trap doors. So the walls on the side of the, of the chicken houses, the walls, the bottom say 50 centimeters or two feet is swing, is a swing door so that you can reach in from the outside and, and more easily harvest the compost. That works really nice for smaller houses. Ours are slightly too large for that. Uh, we found that keeping them watered, not sopping wet, but irrigating them as if it was a garden bed, that compost pile uh, really helps accelerate the breakdown. And also just kind of like digging random holes in there as part of our ch chicken maintenance is just going into the house in the morning, picking a hole, picking a corner or a space where we haven't done this in a little while and dig a hole there. And then they come in and dig down that bottom part. Um, I could talk for more. We've tried to integrate other animals into it. Hanging rabbit cages above the chickens also help fuel that compost pile with their urine, with the poop and the greens that they've made dirty but don't eat. We've tried pigs in there. Uh, that works really well until the pigs start eating the chickens. Uh, and there's a lot of other kind of uh, design potential with that basic idea of keeping your hens on a 
compost pile. Yeah, it makes a lot of sense. And I like how you mentioned that it can be facilitated by watering the beds because what I've seen in both your application and in other places, because it gets so hot at those lower layers, it actually evaporates off a lot of the moisture. And, you know, you want to kind of maintain that balance for ideal de uh, decomposition. Now, Neil, you and Jeremy have developed a, a fantastic multi-tiered system on Granja Siquin's site with multiple animals contributing to the composting. Can you tell us a little bit about how those animals work in synergy, not just to create compost, but also for the cleanliness of the pen? Sure. Um, yeah, we, the animals we work with are goats and chickens mainly, and then we also have some ducks that have been really like surprisingly prolific because we just got actually given a present of some ducks and but they've they've kind of found their way into that system and they're doing well in it but really it works i think mostly because of the um the goat house placing the chicken house below the goat house uh it's like an idea really that i got from shad uh i like one of the things i like about when the way shad teaches is there's like mantras for every kind of subject that I think are really important and the one of the mantras for the animal system is this like natural process where omnivores follow herbivores um, and I guess like in, an, in, a, in a larger farm which we don't have or if where we had pasture we would probably do goats in a in a section of the pasture being moved on a on a daily basis and being followed by chickens that's kind of how that would work but because we don't have that type of farm we as you said we kind of have marginal land and, and, and not a huge amount of it it was easier to do stationary houses where we take the goats out to walk and then the chicken house is really just a kind of like a rip off of shad's deep uh, bedding chicken house an elaboration <laughs> there we go for that copyright reasons yeah. um, uh, it works on like it's essentially two terraces. The, the thing is built on a slope. So it's a goat house and then two two levels of a chicken house below that. And really what we do is instead of turning compost piles, we just successively move it down through levels. So we, we clean out the goat house about every three or four weeks and it goes on to the first level of the, of the chicken house. Um, and the goat manure is quite like anaerobic. It's really, I think goat manure is like, really really high quality because goats are browsers and they have like very high mineral requirements and and so they eat a lot of these like mineral dense plants and then and then poop it out of the house but they really do compact the manure and you see it when you clean up their house it's like not it would not be suitable for putting straight onto your garden but the chickens love it uh and the way we've designed the house is that the chickens can get in there kind of pretty much any time during the day which does work nicely they kind of go in and they often will just even like sit on the back of the of the goat and pick pick bugs off him, but they also scratch around a lot and, and, and eat the little bugs that, that start developing in the goat manure. But yeah, then we we open the door once every two or four weeks, put the goat the, the goat house down into the first level of the chicken house, then the first level of the chicken down into the in, uh, chicken house down into the second level, uh, and then we eventually have a door down at the bottom of the chicken house where we where we throw the piles out and we make like uh, hot piles so we turn one or two more times. And it, it works, um, we, it, the, the, the compost piles, at the, especially towards the end of the process, even within the chicken houses, just like Chad says, if you dig down, it, it, it gets really hot. Uh, but then we find that when we make up the big piles, it really does start to cook down. Um, we, we cover them with plastic at that stage, which is 
uh, ideal for us because that means we don't have to keep watering. As you mentioned, uh, Oliver, the inside of the pile, when it gets really hard, such to just uh, evaporate out all the water and can get dry. But if you have the plastic over it, it almost distills and rains back down into it. And so it kind of creates this sort of like interior hydrologic cycle. Sounds really fancy, but <laughs> just kind of like the other thing cover it. helped actually a lot with the quality from a kind of a qualitative point of view and quantitative actually was during coffee season, like building the, the coffee production facilities and, and depulping sort of uh, five to ten hundred pound sacks of, of, of coffee every day from the community. Um, a lot of that we had planned and just putting it to one side and, and, and using it for lumber compost. But what we actually found over time is it was easier to take kind of well up to slightly over half of it and just put it down into the first level of that chicken house as well. And and the moisture that that has, it, 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 we noticed that the compost really broke down and, and, and was improved by the, the addition of that material. Um, so yeah, that's another. Have you found that in both cases that at least to a certain degree, the feed cost for the chickens is reduced because they're actually eating a lot of uh, bugs or what they call beetles or little parasites that otherwise live, especially in the case of the goats in the manure or even around the goats directly. Um, and has it made a, a significant difference in, in the nutrition levels and the variety of diet for the animals? Um, yeah, okay. I was just kind of starting to do the math in my head uh, and I haven't finished, but the idea, so kind of recommended for our hens, for example, the breed of hen that we work with, the recommended kind of feed per hen is about a quarter pound a day, possibly a bit more. Uh, and this is concentrated feed? That would be like an industrial recommendation, basically. Like concentrated feed, no other feed source, just that. Uh, a, a quarter to a third of a pound a day per hen. So for Four hens would eat a pound, and I know it's like at least six of our hens eat a pound, possibly more than six will get a pound. I would have to do the number exactly, but I'd say we see at least like a 50% reduction in the amount of store-bought feed or non-farm-grown feed uh, by using the kitchen scraps and the hot compost pile. For sure, and now we all know that the... the the quantity of nitrogen, especially in droppings from chickens and certainly the urine from other animals, is very significant and it can be tough to kind of balance out the carbon to nitrogen ratio that would make ideal compost. And I know that we mostly started out using straw that was imported from the coast as the primary source of carbon in these systems, but we've been playing around with different sources as well in an effort to try and, I guess, wean ourselves off of inputs from outside and try and bring as much carbon from the community rather than relying on outside sources. Have you found any success with using like leaf litter or other forms of carbon that are more readily available in the local area? Um, I'll also talk on that one quickly. Um, a few, a few comments on that here in Guatemala, where we are in the highlands of, of, uh, Solola, there's less infrastructure. So it would be different if you're in a place where there's roads and municipalities that maintain like public areas and there's tree trimmers and things like that. You pretty much get 
loads of that stuff pretty easily. Here in our particular situation, uh, organic matter is more difficult to come by. I'm not at all interested in weaning myself off straw that I buy from the coast. I want to buy more. I would like to be able to have the farm afford to buy three times or four times the amount we're currently buying every year. Uh, just to be clear, I think there's a lot of systems in nature that use, like, no, there's no such thing as a closed system in nature. Like, the earth itself isn't even closed. I read the other day, 85 million pounds of cosmic dust lands and settles on the earth every year. So the earth is getting heavier by 85 million pounds of cosmic dust. How crazy is that? There's no such thing as a closed system in nature. And actually what a lot of systems in nature have is you have these these intensive focal points that consume and then lots of broader scape that tend to like provide for the consumption in more densely focused areas. You see it in a cell with the mitochondria and the nucleus. Majority of the cell is there to promote the nucleus's growth, right? And there and that functionality. I see this bringing in hay and bringing in carbon as the as like the mitochondria for the farm, and I'll take that from anywhere uh, as long as it's like a sustainable source that's coming from it. Um, there's some other stuff, but yeah. Yeah. What about you guys? Because you know maybe you're you're not trying to wean off of it directly, but I know that we've experimented with other forms of carbon on the farm. Have you found any advantages or disadvantages from the sources that we have closer around in the local community? Um, yeah, <clears throat> we do. We do find some other materials that are, are quite close by. Uh, sometimes we'll have neighbors that will um, be cleaning out what they call brosa or like this sort of forest mulch on the bottoms of their of their coffee growing areas because they do weeding and they clean the stuff out oftentimes and they're looking to they know it's 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 a great source of carbon. And it's not just carbon, it's, it's got a lot of, of interesting sort of microbial growth in it from the forest, which gives it a nice uh, potential in that way to diversify the, um, the soil communities that you're working with. So it has that benefit to it. It's, I, 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 I agree with Shad, the, the straw is a, um, is a beautiful resource. It stays a bit more um, aerobic. It doesn't, it doesn't get compacted as easily. So it, it definitely creates a, a healthier compost. In some ways, the leaves get packed down almost immediately. Sawdust. Oh, sure, because of the air pockets in the straw. Yeah. kind of keep it. And it insulates the pile, which is really, mm. really helpful. And um, and I also agree that I, I don't see it being a, a serious problem. It's It doesn't create too much of a, a cost issue. It's it's pretty, uh, like, it's not the most expensive thing to pull in. And um, I guess the only thing I would look for is maybe a more nutrient rich uh straw if possible uh that's the stuff that we get the goats aren't super (laughs) excited about it like uh, maybe like barley if there's barley production somewhere getting the stalks off of that yeah this would be a great one something Um, to feed to the especially in dry season something like that would mm -hmm. be amazing so we've talked now a lot about the the base of the systems and the fundamentals of how they work but i know that in both cases uh, on both farms you've made efforts to improve the process with a few other inputs. So let's talk first about EMs. Who wants to explain a little bit about what EMs are, how you brew them, and some of the ways that you've used them to accelerate the compost and improve the quality? Neil, you want to start with that? Sure. Um, To be honest, I don't really fully understand this stuff that well. Uh, (laughs) um, You know... By EMs, we're talking about... 
effective microorganisms. Um, I read a little bit about this stuff, and I have a friend who uh, who's a distributor of um, uh, what do you call it, like sort inoculant. Of, yeah, like he sells basically. I think laboratory prepared uh, solutions, and they're kind of like um, they're kind of like kombucha starters type thing. You put them in a in a in a plastic container, and you do a lacto ferment. You add food source, and you dilute them down, and they, and they proliferate. Uh, as I understand it, it's a sim EMs. It's 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 a it, it's a kind of a patented product product that has the right mix of, of symbiotic bacteria that work. Um, yeah, that works symbiotically in your soil to uh, eliminate pathogens, to break down organic material in a kind of an optimal way. Um, I I definitely think that EMs and, and bacteria and compost teas in general are not, they're no substitute for carbon. Uh, I think they're almost like icing on the cake a little bit, but there's no substitute for like just raw large amounts of organic of broken down organic material um and I, honestly what i do is uh this this friend of mine uh he gave me um kind of gave me a present of like a starter kit for these ems and i started them in a drum probably about a year ago and then i was smelling it and i was just like it's just just like kombucha <laughs> uh is what it smells like or sauerkraut or something or you whatever know, it's clear, and it gets like this white scum layer on the top that anyone who's done any home fermenting will do and i started to kind of be like ah there's no way I'm, you know it's not really i'm not the type of person i guess who, who likes to buy things that come in a shiny uh, plastic container so especially not if you can make them yourself right and and i don't know if i can but anyway what i started <laughs> doing uh what I started doing in this, uh, maybe some listener will, will, will be kind enough to write in and tell me how wrong I am about all this. Um, <laughs> I I kind of, I never let the drum get empty. So I'm assuming it has a lot of these original uh, microbes from the starter kit that we started with. But really, I just top it up. We live next door to uh, to our wonderful neighbors, Jared and Michelle, who run Love Probiotics and, and have a great line of fermented products that they sell here on Lake Atitlana and in Antigua. Uh, and they do kombuchas, ginger beer, junes. Uh, and every now and again, they give me like a scoby or some like leftover fermented ginger. And then at the farm, we also make a lot of cheese. So we have a lot of whey, which is another kind of probiotic thing. Um, and we're always doing little ferments. We make our own ginger beer. We make our own sourdough bread. And so anytime I have a leftover uh, something and, and, and I just I put it into the bucket and I keep it topped up with whey panela which is unprocessed um uh cane sugar cane sugar um and and water from the river that doesn't have chlorine in it that i think is important and we just keep it topped up and we spray on the garden once a week uh we had been spraying it on the compost piles but then we started to notice these things are getting so hot anyway they're obviously full of all kinds of um sure, microbial a tiny bit on top maybe isn't making so and they're probably all competed by these extreme whatever else yeah. is in there and it's yeah. probably a lot of the same stuff <laughs> yeah anyway. um so what we actually do with this stuff mostly now is we sweeten our animal feeds with it um it's kind of like one of the things I'm mo- we, and we and we put a watering can's worth of it onto the garden every week, so it's like you're kind of inoculating the plants and the soil and the garden with it. Um, and what we also do is just like sort of our, our goal is, is to feed our animals as much from the valley as we can. 
and we do we feed our goats with about 80 percent um fresh forage from the valley uh which works i think is, is really great but in order to get that real kick from their from their production really to kind of make it worthwhile we do feed them some we do give them some non-medicated uh concentrates what we do with those is we just we <laughs> it's actually it's nice we uh I, I enjoy this process. Um, yeah, yeah, you do seem to. <laughs> we, we mix, we mix in. So we take a, a five-gallon bucket of of the grain, um, and then we mix in a handful of our own homemade mineral mix, which is actually biochar or activated carbon, which I'm sure Jared's going to talk about soon. Which he Jared figured out an ingenious way of turning the coffee grains into into biochar, sea salt, sodium bicarbonate, uh, and and ash. And we mix it in with that when it's dry, and then we sweeten it with this kind of like, it tastes like a kind of a, a yeah, kombucha. kombucha. And the goats go crazy for it. They eat it much more um, <laughs> ferociously than they would uh, if it wasn't sweetened. And so it's kind of like, I kind of think it's like, okay, it's concentrate, but we're we're sort of like getting really good medicine into them at the same time, uh, the probiotics, and especially the... Um, Especially the, the, the activated carbon, because goats are very prone to parasites. So I think the fact that they're like taking regular small amounts of activated carbon has to, and probiotics has to be helping to alleviate that tendency that they have. Uh, and then finally, like I think in terms of soil building, for me it's like very nice to think of all these like rich mineral sources um, becoming like microbially charged in the rumen of the goat. Uh, where, you know, as I understand it, again, I've taken courses in this stuff, a lot of the sciencey stuff goes over my head, but it, as I understand it, like goats, rumens, and particularly like any herbivore, the root, their rumen is really like a kind of biodigester, and it has a lot of the microbes that are responsible for making minerals uh, bioavailable to plants. There's like that good, uh, there's a good quote by um, uh, Elaine Ingham where she says, every mineral that every plant needs to survive is available in every handful of soil. I think it's like, I think that's it, that might be wrong, but, you know, something along those lines, but usually they're not uh, available because they're, they're, the microbial communities aren't present in the soil to actually like break down these inorganic particles and, and, make, them, and make them bioavailable. So, you know, there's some really elaborate ways that soil scientists kind of talk about about doing this, but for me, just feeding them to goats and then passing the, that goat manure through a system and putting it out to your garden is a, is a pretty passive way of sort of doing that, you know. Now, Shad, have you used any extra additives or improvements for your own compost systems, or are you at the point where the simpler the better and trying to cut out any excess steps? Yeah, um, so let's see. Just, I will... First, I'd take a minute to just put a little bit of what Neil said into context as well. Uh, I also am not really into the these sorts of liquid fertilizer type things. Uh, but one key distinction that's worth noting for listeners or whoever's interested in possibly following such recipes, like what Neil was talking about with the EM, which then became kind of like just a probiotic living stew uh, of whatever kind of probiotic sources he could get, whether it was from a kombucha, etc., and he he mentioned and then keep it topped up with 
panela, which is basically sweetened water. So what Neil was describing there, that EM mix, which converted into other sort of active biological mix, they are all aerobic. They're aerobic fermentations. Lacto-fermentations are aerobic. It means they have oxygen. They're not happening in oxygen-poor conditions. They're happening in oxygen-rich conditions. And so uh, that is cool. Feed it to your animals. Add it to the garden. You know, like it, it does all these things like that Neil kind of talked about. It regenerates the biological communities, et cetera, et cetera. Uh, but then conveniently, then Neil started talking about, well, the inside of the rumen of a goat. And then he said, that actually it's kind of like a biodigester and that's exactly what it is. It's spot on. Those sorts of bacteria that live in that rumen are anaerobic. There's no oxygen in them. And what people often do with teas at home, so you're listening to this right now and you're like, this is sweet. I'm going to like put some like stuff into a bucket and let it sit for a while. Uh, it will most likely turn anaerobic. It will become gross. It will smell gross. It won't smell like a nice kombucha or something you'd want to drink. It would be really disgusting. And so here we go. To wrap that up, you have these aerobic ones and you have anaerobic ones. So aerobic are the probiotics. It's the EMs. It's all the life forms. And the anaerobic ones are not necessarily smelling really good, but they're the ones that make minerals bioavailable. And so uh, keep that in mind. I would not want to put anaerobic shit on my garden. Like I would want to oxygenate it first or in the form of those anaerobic bacteria in the rumen and then the output of that rumen, the poop composted, it becomes biological again. So, so anaerobic stuff you want to treat with caution, but understand that they're the things that might be necessary to make the minerals available. And the aerobic, the oxygenated stuff is kind of good to drink, to spray on your garden, to do whatever with. And the probably yeah, the shut, best. Shut drank just some of ours. It. Bunch of snakes. <laughs> we were doing we were doing garden club, and Shad was, and I brought some up, and Shad thought it was a kombucha. Well, I thought it was a kombucha, <laughs> and then all these guys are like, and he was like, "Yeah, you can drink it," and I'm like, kind of far away, and I'm watching all the people in the course, and they're like taking the teeny sip and making these really like gross faces, and I'm just like. Man, what assholes! Like Neil brought some sweet ginger beer. To Didn't even tell me. No, and no one wants to try it. They're all judgmental. They're like, "This is no. gross." And then I just like went over and pounded like <laughs> a liter of it. Oh, was like, "Oh god!" god. <laughs> well, you know, if it's like, good for you, goats. It was like Neil needs to step up his ginger beer. <laughs> <laughs> this is terrible. Kind of tastes like old yeah. socks. I've actually been taking a little bit of a very similar product recently that I found that somebody is selling around here at the lake and it smells and tastes very similar to EMs. Yeah. You're just supposed to take a cap full of it and mix it in with water, or like put it in with a smoothie. Yeah. But I've had great results from it. Well, I've read that, this, I've read that a lot of, um, and a lot of nutritionists or not a lot of nutritionists, but do take this EM product and just repackage it and sell it as a, as a probiotic. Sure. Or something. Yeah. I would imagine that was happening. So, yeah. So just like to, if people are looking for this, go do some research, but the simplest way to do it is to just sweeten the water or aerate it. Right? You either put a pump in it in areas. You could put some plants that are rich in minerals. You could even put a little manure in there or a sock of compost or something. And then either aerate it or add that probiotic thing that will make it bubble and feed it something sweet. That'll be aerobic, and that's great. If you wanted to dabble in the anaerobic stuff, uh, you would want to, after you get it, make it oxygenated before you put it on your garden. 
And just be wary of that stinky fermented tea that smells really gross because I see that happening a lot. People yeah. think that's a compost tea. It's not a compost tea. It's kind of like a mix of the two and it won't really do good for anything. Yeah. Uh, now, going back to just my personal approach to it, I don't do that stuff just because uh, in our setup and our scale, we don't, we don't, it just never fit for us. I have used like fish emulsions, oxygenated fish emulsions in the past when I had sandy soil and no fertility. But we have like more fertility on the farm. So I'm like the simplest thing that matters. Uh, I don't do any, like I bring in the straw and any other organic matter and the restaurant scraps. And we basically, our only compost pile on the whole entire farm is under our chickens. And anything that we don't burn goes in there. And that just suits our approach. Yeah, you have a super simple approach, which is really great from a learning point of view because you're like, well... And from a business point of view, I mean, yeah. we're going to talk about this a little bit more in a minute, but efficiency is a huge aspect of making a farming or production model profitable. Right. And if you add a whole bunch of unnecessary steps or, you know, maybe they're necessary, maybe they have a function, but if they can't be justified by the amount of time or human labor put into them, it's really hard to justify them in a profitable model. Now, I know that there's one other main additive to the compost that especially Neil and Jeremy have been trying lately and that's biochar and I know that Jeremy knows a lot more about this and has been experimenting with it on the farm so do you want to tell us a little bit about the method that you've discovered Hell for yeah. turning all of the, the coffee hulls into biochar and some of the other things you've been able to do with that method yeah um, yeah sort of like uh, the same uh, style in mind as all the other things we talked about really try to simplify it and actually um we're doing it on quite a small scale compared to what other people might do um i'll also say it's probably not the most efficient system but because it's on a small scale and we have waste product to use it seems to work fine for us and and we try to use this system to do other things um and i'll talk about it in a minute but like uh smoking like smoke cooked chickens on the inside of the oven as you do the biochar is a the way we found to like make it justifiable to uh to really have the process go go forward sure it's you stacking functions you get smoked chicken at the end i mean because otherwise you're just burning loads of fuel and you do get some product out of it but uh there's a there's a pretty high you know heat cost to doing it which which wouldn't work uh otherwise probably so our <clears throat> i guess i'll explain real quick why why biochar is important um all the other organic matter uh, kind of, it's a, it's a form of, of carbon, inorganic carbon basically. And it works like organic matter in the soil or broken down uh, living carbon, uh, like what would come from hay or, or leaves. The thing about this organic carbon sources that create this black fluffy earth is that they eventually exhaust from the soil. Uh, the micro, microbial communities um, use them uh, as a calorie and they, and they break it down and eventually it all gets exhausted into the air in the form of CO2. Um, it gets oxygen and it goes back into the atmosphere. Exactly. Yeah, oxidized, whatever you want to call it. Uh, or just turn into plants. Or, oh yeah, I mean the plants are creating, sure the plants are creating more carbon thanks to the organic matter in the soil. Um, but you do have to keep adding it as the idea. And that, you know, if you can cut out that step, uh, <laughs> That could mean huge things for any gardener. Um, bringing in the carbon is always like an, a really extensive and, <laughs> and, cons and like continual process. 
And so what biochar basically does is create this organic matter in your soil um, to create communities for soil microorganisms to hold on to water, to hold on to nutrients really well. It does not exhaust from the soil um, because it's actually inorganic or it's become mineralized through this heating process. Uh, and what that means is uh, it can exist in the soil much like any mineral for thousands of years or indefinitely. Uh, some people say it lasts for like 10,000 to 30,000 years, which is like more than enough for me to Yeah, really... more than you need for your mark. <laughs> yeah, uh, which kind of has interesting uh, ramifications, like you're, you're creating permanent uh, fertility on a piece of land, which really feels nice. Um, the, the interesting thing is how, you, how do you actually make this stuff and what do you make it out of? Uh, a lot of people talk about just using any old bits of carbon, like uh, scraps of wood or, or leaves or, or sawdust. Um, and the last, the second two I would say would be a better idea than scraps of wood because the scraps of wood are quite dense and they're all in different sizes. So they don't break down at the same time into the, the black, you know, charcoal bits that you want, the sort of powder, right? Which you can do it, but it just, it's not very efficient because you're like... So higher surface area is ideal? Higher surface area. Even heating and, and the product that you want? Breakdown and like the, uh, yeah, cons consistent texture. You want something that looks like activated charcoal. Already. Because that's kind of what it is, really. Yeah, these this powdery flakes of, of black stuff. And if you were to look at it under a microscope, it would look like a totally crazy-looking sponge structure with all these little passageways and holes, like micropores in it, like, you know, just so much. Um, and what we use, you got to find the right material and make it and one that's available, hopefully, free or... Uh, if it's not free and abundant, and abundant yeah. free and abundant, uh, we use the shells from the coffee. They're the hull of the coffee. After you take the pulp off, there's this dry uh, parchment uh, shell around the outside is what they call it. And um, the buddy that roasts the coffee for us and for most people around our area has just so much of it. And, you know, he's like using it as mulch and other things, but he's not really, you know, he's just kind of, oh, yeah, that stuff. And it's not a great mulch, really. It's kind of somewhat impermeable. Um, well, it doesn't soak up moisture yeah. in its raw form. It's silica-rich, so it's almost like this like little glass shells around the coffee. So it's not doing a whole lot. It might keep moisture in the soil a bit, yeah, sure. It's a little bit, but it's still but organic But it can also matter. wick it off the surface, too. I've seen it do that, for sure. And it's kind of just slow to break down. It's just not really a high-value product on its own. Uh, so we just... We're like, give us as much as you can get over here. You know, anytime you come over, please bring a bag. And yeah. so now we have loads of it and we're just using it. Anytime uh, we get a chicken from Shad or we kill a duck or something like that, um, we toss it right in there because it means we get to make um, biochar and we get to use a lot of the scrap wood from our construction uh, to heat what we call the retort or the container that you put the biochar material in. So you have the sort of tin a vessel or whatever it's made out of steel vessel that's oxygen can't get into but heat can conduct into it so basically you bake and oxygen can escape from it actually that's yeah you do need a well gases not gases. not yeah yeah. yeah yeah it needs to vent um there's all sorts of organic gases that come out of it which are not good for the atmosphere they're like intense greenhouse gases and they're flammable so the trick with biochar is that you send the gases back into the, the heating element or the, the stove underneath so it can burn off and actually heat itself 
And once these guys get kicking, ours is very inefficient, by the way. It's like we don't even have that step down right now, unfortunately. I would, I would like to get that working a bit more. We have to get a welder in there I mean, and start. You're, I'll just interrupt for a sec. Jared's like being very humble here. This is actually like arguably my favorite design feature on our farm because it's like, <laughs> well, sure, because with other biochar furnaces, you don't get to smoke first. Yeah, and yeah, by this that's fair. The, the technique Jared came up with of just really having a fire pit where we, we burn our waste uh, construction material, putting a drum over the top of it that has a door and a rack where the chicken can go up on top of the rack and the, the coffee shells go down onto the bottom. It creates this kind of insulating effect. So the chicken like cooks in really mm-hmm. slowly. And then to stop the biochar going too far, Jer puts in a little bit of water, what at about the three-quarter mark. Yeah, exactly. And that, the water just kind of goes in and it means the chicken sort of plumps up. So you get this actually kind quite smoke-steam. Yeah, like smoky smoky steam. steamed chicken and, and, and he always marinates oh, it before. Oh, it's beautifully. It just, I've tried. It comes out amazingly yeah, well. Amazing. So it's almost, it, it would be worth lighting that amount of wood just to produce uh chicken of this quality and the fact that you get this amazing soil amendment as well i think it's like <laughs> it's a beautiful system and i really like that we he just did it without spending any money like it was a drum that we'd already had yeah we had tried, tried to build before a, for a we tried to build an oven stove yeah yeah we use it for so many things work and i had one of those like wake up in the middle of the night moments i was like whoa wait a minute <laughs> what are we doing <laughs> let's use this uh tin barrel or whatever steel barrel well, hey, so talk to me now about how you in with soil amendments, because it's not something you can just throw on top of your garden beds, right? Yeah, good point. Um, so after it's uh, been cooked down and it's in this really fine texture, um, we consider that activated charcoal. It's activated in the sense that it's ready to receive or pull in loads of, of solution, uh, nutrients and solution, anything, uh, even parasites and other stuff like that. That's why Neil is so psyched about giving it to the goats because it will just suck them right out of its stomach lining and, and pull it down through and out of, of the animal system. And same for humans. I could use this stuff if I needed to. I'd use it when I had parasites. Yeah. Like, I, I guess, it's a really good way of rendering them inactive and clearing your system yeah. out. Yeah. I'm going to like, our, one of our guys has got a bad case of gut right now. Miguel, actually. I'm going to like slip some in his food later and not tell him. <laughs> I'm just kidding. Yeah, you'll be really surprised when his poop all comes out black. Yeah, no, just kidding. Um, he'll probably take it anyways. Um, but it's it's great for all that stuff. It has so many uses. You clean water with it, whatever, if you wanted to. Um, and it's we don't produce a lot of it, so I like that we're using it for these sort of like specific concentrated uses. Um, and all the extra biochar goes into our worm uh, production system. We were adding it to our animal house system, but it was almost like... A drop, drop in the, the bucket. Ocean. Yeah, drop in the ocean. It was like, all right, so it's in there maybe. Like, I don't, yeah. I'm not sure how much Half compared to... A gallon bucket into a hundred chicken house. It's like... Not a whole... Not saying a whole lot. But if you put it into your worm compost and you have them, the juices from the worms soaking in cons- constantly, you have a really fine, uh, really like high-end product basically. And the worms would also... It would also pass... The worms would eat it and... and excrete it out as well and then it becomes charged or um, inoculated immediately when the worms work through it and so what that means is now it's ready to go in your garden and it's going to have all these amazing effects it's going to hold on to the nutrients it gives it to the plants easier because uh, we mentioned the the microbes need to be present for the plants to receive a lot of these minerals and they're in the biochar they're being received from the worms or whatever other sort of active compost that you have it 
yeah. it mixed into. Um, so it actually... And it I, will... It's important to realize that, I think, because it will... Otherwise, if you just put it straight on your soil, it will actually... It will charge itself in your soil. So it'll leach nutrients out of the soil. Not leach is probably it would pull them away from the plants. It will outcompete your plants. So it will actually. I've 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 heard cases of it actually when it's added uncharged to gardens or or, or farms that it has like a negative uh, result on yield. Yeah, year. it could take years for this stuff to uh, build up if you don't. That's what happened to me the first time I made it when I was over in uh, in Emap. I made a bunch of it in a out of. Uh, all the corn stalks and they like added it as mulch to the garden and all the plants just like shriveled up and like got kind of yellow because it was actually robbing nitrogen from the from the plants um, what kind of concentrations are we talking about here how much biochar would you ideally add to uh, a really well charged fertile uh, soil system for a market garden as much as you possibly can it's like you can't add too much um, but you really recharged yeah. yeah as long as it's inoculated you could really just i guess i would add it in small amounts in area i like to, what i like to do now is what i'm thinking is like put it in our nursery into the plants that we're going to put into the ground so that they're there with them from the start because that's where plants need it most especially is when they're like growing and putting it deep in your garden is really nice because if you have it at the bottom of a of a say a planting area all the nutrients that would leach out during the rainy season for instance will get trapped down there by the stuff um, so you think about the most effective use of it, I guess, cause you, you never make that much. The only people that make a really lot of it have a big system that they're working on and it's and beautiful. It's a, byproduct of something. it's a byproduct and they use the heat for something. We're using it for chickens. Um, but we have a friend Klaus who uses, uh, rice hulls and he heats, he, he cooks the rice hulls to make the biochar and the heat works as a kiln or works in a kiln to dry wood. He stores yeah, and you want processes lumber. Energy as many times as yeah. possible before you can't reclaim it, right? And that's more important on a larger scale. For our scale, it's not, you know, we wouldn't like try to set up some elaborate kiln drying system if we were just going to, you know, use it every once in a while. But we might, maybe if we could get like a weekly rotisanal uh, smoked chicken at Atlanta Organics day going. Uh, maybe we could do like make a dehydrator connected to it. Or, uh, <laughs> Man, I'm still super excited about the idea of making a sauna that oh, also yeah. churns out biochar. I'm yeah. still working on this idea. I gotta get sauna char. Yeah, I gotta get a space to work on that. It's like anyway, that. yeah, and then like maybe it could heat water as a byproduct of the exhaust. There's a lot of ways of reclaiming heat. But let's uh, switch gears for just a second here. I want to talk before we run out of time about some of the new endeavors and how you guys are moving forward with your respective farms. I know that you have been trying to form an Atilan Organics cooperative. Tell us a little bit about where we're at in that process and how working with the local community is starting to advance. Um, yeah, <clears throat> let's see. So uh, the, the reality here is there's no real infrastructure to sell into for these small organic products. Uh, there's not like distributors of them already existing. And furthermore, the demand is really high and each individual holding both of, of international people and locals is like not ever enough to satisfy the demand. So the, just part of the reality is like there'll always be a larger demand for organic food than any one individual person here could, could, uh, satisfy and there's really no way to even reach that market even though it exists and so 
uh, we are kind of having to figure out all the details of like how how do you package these things, how do you maintain communication with customers, how do you distribute them, how do you charge for them? That like that whole kind of chain, uh, and naturally it it works better when you handle more products, of course. Um, so yeah, Neil and Jeremy and I have been working. Uh, for now over a year, well, basically a bit over a year ago, I uh, I decided it was in Atilan Organics, the farm's best move, interest to to remove the goats so that we could focus on the salad greens, the eggs, and the chicken. And so at the same time, Neil and Jeremy were looking for a centerpiece operation and both had experience with goats. And so we basically made a deal to lend them potentially like kind of like a rent to buy type sort of situation. Uh, and so they took the goats over, but in that ag- arrangement, we basically decided to sell under the same label that is Atilan Organics, uh, partly because of the recognition that's around here and it has, you know, uh, kind of... Well, your operation is a lot more developed at this point. Developed and just also the, the idea that the word organic is in there, like lends itself to products uh, that are organic. And so anyway, basically, we, we now have the two of us working together. We've been for many years... So our, like we're here at the Bamboo Guest House right now. Our head chef also has a greenhouse up above where he grows organic tomatoes and chili peppers, uh, but also salads that supplement our production. So we buy salads from him. Uh, we have two local egg producers in addition to uh, assistance from Neil and Jeremy. Uh, and so we have a, a team of local people as well that are starting to tap into this. But really, the work before looking for products is, is figuring out those logistics. And so a big step I think we've made in service of this is uh, we now have sh- started to share the delivery. So so Atilan Organics Farm, our farm manager, basically communicates with all the clients. That's like part of our responsibility is taking in all the orders. And then we deliver to two different towns twice a week. And so now Atilan Organics team takes both Atilan Organics and Grand Hatsikin, Neil and Jeremy's products, to one town, and then the other town is covered by Grand Hatsikin team, Neil and Jeremy. So the fact that we could basically, like, uh, dovetail our need for transportation uh, into serving both of us and, and having our time of delivering is like a big step in that direction. Where I see it could go, and maybe Neil or Jeremy, you guys want to add in on this after, I would like to see the, the, the branding continue to improve and the packaging and the presentation in the stores and at the restaurants that use our products to continue to improve. I'd like to continue to improve the, the logistics of transport and then thoughtfully add new products one by one. Um, yeah. Yeah, I, I couldn't agree more. Um, I think it's great. Um, it, it's, it's great, I think, trying to find ways to, to work symbiotically with alongside each other and I think in, in some ways it's the it's the basis of good community you know um, so definitely so far so good it was a it was a great gesture it was like a real Shad giving us a loan of the of the goats uh, like a year and a, a year and two or three months ago uh, was a huge shot in the arm for our farm and to get goats that were already producing milk, it was like 
a huge head start um, and then um, yeah we put a lot it did take us the guts of a year probably to have really really consistent consistency with our production and uh, and products so you know now it's I do kind of feel like proud to be a member of this thing where regularly in stores and restaurants all over the lake there's really good high quality chicken eggs salad cooking greens uh dairy milk and, and cheese you know like and all really like good top-notch products there's loads of other things that that both shad and ourselves have planted and have had plenty of experience growing like sweet potatoes malangar taro root turmeric tree tomatoes these are all like uh perennial crops basically that well not uh come out they're not perennial but um you know sort of easy crops to grow that things just that want to grow and like to grow here uh that i would be really excited to to look into uh expanding the thing but shad's right it's like um you there's there's quite a lot to figure out <laughs> for, each, for each product for i each know that's, product. A, that's a topic for another podcast all the intricacies of actually selling and distributing your yeah. products because as we've talked about so much here and also in other interviews i've done it's it's pretty easy to grow things <laughs> it's pretty easy to get products out of the ground either through plants or through animals but managing the business side of it is a whole nother aspect and i definitely look forward to exploring that more um i just gave I just get, we're hosting a PDC right now, a permaculture design certification course. Uh, we host a couple of years, so if you if you're listening and interested in in coming and learning and practicing here, check us out. Uh, but I'm, we're teaching one right now, and this morning was the talk on kind of permaculture inspired businesses, triple bottom line businesses, land based endeavors with an with an intention to make something at least to cover the expenses of of the totality of the operation. And I quoted Joel Saladin, who's kind of like my role model in, in this whole realm of like farm business and farm entrepreneurship. And he says, even you know, nature rewards even the most feeble attempt at production. Like even the crappiest attempt to grow some food usually grows some food. Like nature's pretty sweet, just like gives you something. But the real trick, like you just said, Oliver, is like yeah you're going to get something before you plant it you should know where you're going to sell it if you have intention of selling it now before we wrap up today can both of you guys well all three of you guys talk a little bit about the things that you have on offer right now because there's a whole range of courses and you guys have started a cafe a gran hasikin and atitlan organics is working in new realms as well talk a little bit about where you're headed in the future because i'm really looking forward to catching up and doing some follow-up on this when I have a chance to come back. Um, yeah, I can, I can lead. Uh, so definitely, you know, we're, it's an interesting time right now. Uh, the Atilan Organics farm and then also Gran Hatsikin. Uh, and we also have a, another uh, farm that we work with, Big Rock Farm, which is over in San Marcos. Uh, and the three of us, the, the three farms and four of us, that's including Haley, who's not here right now, uh, the four of us are also collaborating on the teaching endeavor. So we're not only looking for like the farm product cooperative, but we're starting to dream up this vision of like what a teacher's cooperative would look like. And it would probably include not just courses both here and abroad, but also possibly consulting services and other things that maybe Neil and Jeremy will mention a bit more 
but it's the same kind of set of questions. How do we work together symbiotically at the teaching level as well? So, uh, you know, I'm really excited that we now have a team of four solid lead facilitators that are teaching intro to permaculture courses uh, and also permaculture design certification courses. So you can find information about all the permaculture trainings on OptimalOrganics.com. You can check all that out. Uh, furthermore, we have some other cool things going on both at Optimal Organics and at the Bamboo Guest House, which is kind of like the farm's guest house and, and where we have our farming table restaurant. Uh, we have uh, a 200-hour yoga teacher training with a permaculture component with Awakened Spirit Yoga in November. We also have a uh, training on doula and midwifery in July with Hannah, one of the great midwives of, of this area. And we also have a permaculture for the herbalist path course that's September 23rd. And this is super exciting. This is our first collaboration with Punta Mona in Costa Rica and with the village witches who do the master herb stuff uh, and vision festival and also pulling in fungi academy. So that herb course is a four week permaculture and herb uh, mapping the human body and systems to the whole earth system. It's going to be really exciting that September so we got a lot of stuff. You can check out all our things at OptimalOrganics.com and you can also check out BambooGuestHouse.com as well for, for other listings there. Awesome. And you guys, tell me about how Granja Sikina is moving forward and developing after about a year and a half of collaboration. Uh, we have a we have a lot of work to do yet. We're <laughs> we're rebuilding our animal house. Uh, we built it as a kind of a temporary structure, and we're sort of building it around doubling down on the things that we've seen working. Um, so we're we're making it work. We're ample, we're making it more ample, so there's more room for goats, and we can put more divisions in there, uh, and also. Um, rebuilding the structure so that it can have a, a flat deck up above where we can have extra space for growing plants and maybe even like a hangout area but also principally an area to, to dry coffee in, in, in coffee season so that's like a big project uh, we're, we're finishing our, our post uh, farmhouse as well there's, there's quite a bit of work to do on that and we have like quite a bit of landscaping to do yet we have a whole uh, a whole sort of zone Zone two stroke three forest garden um, wetland that we're like midway through uh, doing the earthworks on now. So that's a it's a lot of work. Uh, it's we're really excited about it, um, and it's a it's a great opportunity for um, long term volunteer slash like apprenticeship or intern or leadership kind of programs that we're like looking forward to because like we do have all this really interesting work going on right now and we're in that sort of like primary implementation phase you know so it's 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 cool in a lot of ways it's yeah. <laughs> it's a lot of work and we're, we're happy to open it up to people um that are really like yeah, gung-ho to like get get in we're on excited this about about that kind of like in a way symbiosis between the volunteer program and the and the, and the teaching program because yeah we really do feel like you know a, a stint at at actually doing the hands-on work of implementing these systems in in, in conjunction with a course uh, is is a really I think good way to fast track your learning if you're passionate about this stuff. Um, and then the other thing we're super excited about is uh, is the community reforestation project. Um, it was a great uh, you know Shad in a lot of sense that already envisioned this project, and then we spent a lot of time doing the first ones where 
uh, we started doing week-long uh, volunteer programs where, where people can come learn the basics of agroforestry and, uh, and permaculture, but really spend most of the time uh, doing light earthworks and planting trees on, on local people's land, uh, which for us is like, I guess, the culmination of, of like probably between Shadai, me, Shad, and, and Jeremy, maybe like 20 plus years of, of being Guatemalan and observing this ecosystem and, and realizing that coffee in a lot of ways holds, could hold the key to preserving this ecosystem because it is a shade tolerant forest crop. And, and I'm really inspired by like this vision of, of somehow being part of the development of kind of like a community wide zone three commercial operation we're lucky that we collaborate with tim who's a coffee roaster um and we're lucky that we we did build up good relations last year by buying so much coffee from the community and we kind of have now like a list of of names of, of coffee producers who are very excited to have some soil conservation and and, and useful shade trees planted on their land um so that's another like endeavor that is I think we're all pretty excited about. Yeah, it's super exciting. And before we wrap up, I just want to say to all of you guys, um, for those of you especially who have been following the podcast, know that I'm about to transition out of here and work on other projects. But I want to say thank you to the three of you because working alongside of you, not only in the farms, but also as a teacher, I've learned so much and the opportunity to uh, both work with the different endeavors and enterprises that we as a team have been getting going in the last year and a half and also collaborating with you Shad and teaching here at the guest house has been such a privilege I've gotten so much out of this in the last uh, two and a half years since I've been in this community I've never felt so connected to any place in in the world I've been traveling for almost 14 years now and a big part of that has been the way you guys have sort of welcomed and facilitated our collaboration and all of the things that we've uh, we've been doing as a group here in that last time. So thank you so much. I'm really looking forward to staying in touch while I continue to travel around the world. And we'll check in at a later date in how all of these endeavors continue to grow and and flourish. Yeah, awesome. likewise, Oliver. That's, uh, you've also been a great teacher to us. Um, so, yeah. Yeah, and shout out for, you know, uh, getting as far as we did with all the construction projects that we've done on our land. Um, you've been in a, uh, an invaluable resource in that way. So, um, yeah, so excited to hear everything that you're, that you're going to be getting up to along the way. And uh, Yeah, it sounds like all of us are going on to some really awesome things. And, uh, yeah, it's, it's going to be really fun to con- continue to see over time how these things develop and mature and the information that we'll be able to put out to this audience and other audiences in the future hopefully inspiring people to do similar projects. So thanks so much for making the time today, you guys. It's been a real pleasure, and we'll catch up again soon. Thank you all. All right, bye. Adios. Thank you so much for tuning into this week's episode. As always, you can find all the show notes for this and all other episodes at AbundantEdge.com by clicking on the podcast tab in the navigation bar. On the website, you can also find a whole range of educational articles, as well as the services we offer from design and consulting to education. 
While you're there, don't forget to take a look at the courses and workshops we offer, which are all designed to empower you to take back control of your life by giving you the skills to produce your own food, manage landscapes regeneratively, build your own homes and structures with natural materials, and most importantly, to dream ever bigger about the highest potential that you could achieve for yourself, your community, and the planet that we share. I'm very grateful to all of you who have added comments and send feedback to me. Your contributions help this to be the conversation and dialogue that it's meant to be. For anyone else interested, you can email me and the whole team directly at info at AbundantEdge.com. And all of your feedback makes these episodes and interviews so much more engaging and help me to give you the information and content that you want. Thank you so much for listening, and I'll see you again in next week's session.